You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. But today, on the 11th of March, we're really delighted to have a special guest, Tommy Fretwell. Tommy is involved with the King's Evangelical Divinity School, a really important teaching resource and training resource for the church, and, uh, and, and, and Tommy contributes to that, to that teaching ministry of the King's Evangelical Divinity School. He also has pastoral responsibilities in, in, in the church community in Hastings. He's well known to, to many of you here, and uh, we're really delighted Tommy is here. And he's speaking today on responding um, to the new supersessionism, how Christian theology connects with God's promises to Israel. There's different models, there's different methods, and Tom is speaking into that particularly, how we respond to supersessionism, to, to replacement theology. And Tom is probably one of the best people to have speaking on this. Tom is doing ongoing research into this area as he works towards his PhD. So he comes with that engagement both between the academy, the, the, the academic world, and also the church and mission world. And that's, that's a really wonderful gift to have, to be able to speak into both contexts. So I'm going to pray for Tommy and then hand over to him for his teaching. Tommy, come forward, and then uh, we'll, we'll pray together. Father God, I thank you for my brother Tommy. Thank you for the gifts and grace you've given to him. And as he teaches this afternoon, may he be blessed by what he says and may he be a blessing to us. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. Looking forward to this. This is always one of those topics I do enjoy speaking on because obviously it ties in with a lot of my personal interests and my, my academic research. But it's often not a topic that <laughs> gets requested to speak on too much in churches. I do sort of feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. But I'm sure you appreciate that that's not actually the situation in the wider church context in which uh, we sort of live and breathe where we are. So we're looking at the new supersessionism. I know this is a, quite an in-depth topic, actually. You are going to get a sort of 30,000 feet overview of the issues involved with some of this stuff because we just would take months and months to go into it in huge amounts of depth. But I would say that we are at a time, I believe, where we need to be talking about these topics in the church because the culture seems to be, well, sort of going a little bit crazy in some respects, if you understand what I mean by that. Obviously, we know that God is in charge, but things like you know the rise in anti-Semitism, in our country alone, we've just had the whole debacle, haven't we, with the general election and one of our major political parties. At the end of last year, we saw the Hanukkah stabbings. If you're on social media, uh, videos, sort of reality TV type videos of Jewish people being attacked in New York and various places, they're, they're almost commonplace now to the point that you just scroll through them rather quickly. And that is the sort of the world that we are living in, living in right now. And that's quite concerning. So I think part of the church you know we need to speak up and stand against these things just recently i'm sure many of you have probably read that the church of england's god's unfailing word document that was just released fairly recently which is acknowledging christian anti-judaism and the way that's led to anti-semitism needs to be repented of and that was a good document i'll just quote quote to you briefly from the archbishop he says, there seems to be something in the DNA of Christianity that from its early years, its anti-Jewish emphasis led to the virus of anti-Semitism being nurtured by it. Now that, unfortunately, tragically, is a true, true statement, but the question I think we need to address, why is that a true statement? What can we do to make sure that that is definitely not true going forward? And 
as my generation, sometimes I sort of see myself as a link between generations because I, I do a lot and have done a lot of youth ministry. And this is an issue that you will generally never find addressed with the younger generation, which I believe is why we're seeing a, a sort of shift from traditional support in the church for Israel on these issues. So another reason why we need to be active in this area. However, it's not just standing against anti-Semitism and dealing with these rather ugly aspects. Just the study of Israel in the Bible, I believe Israel is actually one of the largest meta-narratives, the, the overarching themes of Scripture that we actually find in the Bible. And I would say it's actually quite unlikely that you have a full big-picture understanding of the Bible without a knowledge of what it teaches about Israel. And this is where the issues of supersessionism or replacement theology, I'm going to use those words interchangeably throughout that talk, this talk, comes in. You see, the subject is often ignored. It's often considered to be too controversial. It's often very misunderstood. Or more often than not, I find today that it's simply clouded with too much political baggage that is too much for someone to unpack on a Sunday morning. So it's not really something that gets pushed too much. Now, what I always do when I'm speaking with people is I, I really just ensure them that a proper understanding of Israel will actually enrich your personal Bible study. It will equip you to understand the times more effectively and, quite frankly, just marvel at God's uh, sovereign, redemptive hand in history. All of this is tied up with, it, with Israel, and it will help you understand the church and all these different things much, much better. Because we all know there is something very unique about Israel. It's not uncommon to, to witness people getting off planes and falling to the ground and kissing the ground when you go to Israel. I just returned from Israel last year. It's always amazing to see those people who are there for their first time as they sort of get it, you know, and the Bible opens up to them in those new ways and you see that sort of childlike enthusiasm that comes through again. I've never been to Israel and not seen that happen to someone. So the, this is, again, a very important thing. I was just sharing with some of some people before. I was supposed to be in Israel again in a couple of weeks, but obviously that's been cancelled right now. If I was there for a conference, so hopefully we'll this whole thing will blow over and we'll be able to resume business as usual in that area. Now, let me just share with you a little introduction before we get into some of the meat to do with replacement theology. In 1 Chronicles 17, from King David, he famously cried out in that great prayer. He said, what one nation on earth is like your people, Israel? Similarly, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 11:12, a land, Israel is a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord are always on it. And Ezekiel, the prophet, he described Israel as the glory of all lands. Now, we hear statements like this, and we have to think carefully, what are we to make of such statements? Maybe for us in this room, they don't shock us so much. We're used to these sort of things. But if you push statements like this in a number of church settings... You can just sense the confusion. People don't quite know what to make of it because when they look at the land of Israel today, they see a land that's maybe associated in their mind with strife, with war, with conflict, with disputes about ownership, very high crime rate, high abortion rates, high drug rates, all these sorts of things. Everything that we would find in, in other nations, to be frank, in many ways. So really to make sense of it, we have to look with spiritual eyes in some respects. And obviously we are Christians, we have a biblical worldview, we have a a revelatory faith, we believe in revealed faith, so ultimately we must come back to the scriptures on this. But the Bible, like I said, Israel is a massive theme in the Bible. It's the land of the patriarchs, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
It's the land of the prophets. This is where Elisha and Elijah, Jeremiah and Isaiah conducted their great ministries that we read so much about. This is the land of miracles. This is where the Jordan River was parted, where the walls of Jericho came down. It's the land of the psalmists. This is where the sweet singers of Israel, David and Korah's sons and Asaph, composed those uh, just wonderful words that have just echoed through time, really, and brought so much encouragement to people. It's a land of kings also. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, bad kings, Ahab, these sorts of people too that we've seen all through Israel. But ultimately we know that this leads to the main point, it is a land where God dwelt. God came obviously down to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, he dwelt with them in the temple, and ultimately John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. This is where Jesus lived and conducted his ministry. And this is why it holds such equal significance for Christians. It's the land of the Messiah. Here he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. It was around the shores of the Galilee that he ministered. The soil of the Garden of Gethsemane that soaked up his tears in the ground of Golgotha that absorbed his blood on that fateful day. And it was from this land that he ascended into heaven and it is to this land that he will one day return. This is why this must be of supreme importance to our theology. But it's not just the land, it's the people too. Years ago, someone asked Leo Tolstoy, the famous novelist, asked this question, what is the Jew? And he answered, the Jew is the symbol of eternity. He is the one for, so, for who for so long had guarded the prophetic message and transmitted it to all mankind. A people such as this can never disappear. The Jew is eternal. He is the embodiment of eternity. Or the, the equally famous Mark Twain quote, which gets quoted a lot. It's a wonderful quote. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Now, that's a question that people still ask in some respects. When you actually just talk about the history of Israel from even a secular context, what is the secret of his immortality? Well, quite simply, the secret is that the Jewish people are a covenant people. The secret lies in God. They are a covenant people. They were born out of a covenant, and God's covenant is his promise, and his promises remain. This is what we have to understand. And I believe this is also the reason why we see anti-Semitism. Robert Wistrich, the, uh, the professor, he called it the longest hatred, that famous phrase, the longest hatred. And I believe this is, again, we need to understand this with spiritual eyes. The answer lies in the spiritual realm. Anti-Semitism is one of those things that's kind of just out of all proportion to everything else that we see in the world. It's just, it is literally the longest hatred. And this requires an explanation. I believe we find... A part of that in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says, To them, to, to the Jews, to Israel, belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promise. Whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, belongs here, this is continual present tense. In, in, this is saying that they, they did belong and they still belong. This is a good argument against replacement theology. But what it's basically saying is that the covenants belong to the Jewish people. Now, yes, there's an element of in the new covenant where we are grafted in and we share in the spiritual blessings to those covenant. But this is pivotal to understand. You see, the biblical covenants are how God mediates his blessings to the world. 
This is, this is what we have to understand. Ultimately, that is how he mediates his blessings to the world. The covenants contain the promises of God. The promises of God represent his character and his nature, and the covenants were given to the house of Israel. And the satanic onslaught that we see against the Jewish people, I believe, is reflective of the attempt by Satan to discredit God by breaking those promises or those covenants. This has been tried many times throughout history. We have many attempts in the Bible where this is recorded for us. We have equally as many attempts in our own modern era history. But we know, Jeremiah 31, 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it way, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me. Kind of poetic way of saying it's not going to happen, basically. They will never succeed in those attempts. However, this does mean, I believe, that the church really needs to understand what we are to think of Israel. Now, I know people land on different areas, even within the viewpoint that are generally uh, favourable to this sort of theology. There's still a, quite a wide range of perspectives. That's fine. We're not really going to be looking at them today. I'd love to spend time outlining a theology of Israel with you, but that's for another time. We are going to look specifically this morning at the doctrine of supersessionism. So this would be one of the false theologies, I believe, of Israel, and is something that concerns the church. In particular, I want to look at what is being classed as the new supersessionism. So this is a new movement within typical replacement theology that has some very novel elements to it that is actually, I would say, more pertinent that we understand that in our day and age right now however in order to understand the new I want to just and again this is where I feel like I'm preaching to the choir but I want to set the context because we have to understand the old in order to differentiate what is new about the new if you, if you see what I mean by that so replacement theology if I was to give you a very broad definition this is the view that the church has replaced Israel in the future plan of God i.e. the covenantal promises that we've just talked about regarding Israel's future and blessing have now been transferred to the church. You'll find language such as spiritual Israel being applied to the church in many ways, ultimately saying there is no longer any ongoing purpose for Israel in a national sense and their unique identity has sort of been subsumed into this one homogenous group now labelled new spiritual Israel. That, in a nutshell, that is what we're doing. Ronald Diprose, the scholar, he, he quoted, he said this, he says, the church completely and permanently replaced ethnic Israel in the, work, in the working out of God's plan and as recipient of the Old Testament promises to Israel. That's his definition of replacement theology, I should clarify that. And more recently, you might have heard the term fulfillment theology being thrown around, and this happens a lot in the new supersessionism. The reason for this, I believe, is that it is an attempt to distance itself from maybe the negative connotations that the replacement language seems to imply. So a lot of people, it's, they don't, I'm not a replacement, I don't believe in replacement, I believe in fulfillment, and they, they sort of argue, one representative scholar, Kim Rilberger, uh, he says, the promises to Israel vanish in Christ Jesus who has fulfilled them. So you see this allows them to sidestep the charge of replacement and say it's not, it's not about replacement, it's actually served its purpose and fulfilled. It's a much more sort of nicer way of putting it, but I'll be frank with you, when you read their, where their material, they end up in exactly the same place as far as I can tell. So the, the journey's a little different, but the destination is ultimately the same with fulfillment theology. So don't be fooled by that language. Now, we all know 
that you know, from probably the second, third century onwards, replacement theology did really become the dominant view within church history. There's always pockets that, that stayed away from it, but ultimately it was, you know, the whole history of the church is, is basically in many ways a history of replacement theology, unfortunately. Just let me read to you some of these famous church fathers. Hippolytus, he wrote his expository treatise against the Jews. Tertullian, he wrote his answer to the Jews. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, he wrote uh, these series of sermons, orations against the Jews, and they are extremely vicious. This sort of, they call it the adversos judios tradition, continued all through the Middle Ages, right up until the Reformation leaders. I'm sure you're all familiar with Martin Luther's on the, towards the Jews, against the Jews and their lies, rather, his, his tract against the Jews where he advocates for a number of things that we've seen, unfortunately, played out in history. Now, all of this sort of teaching, this replacement language, it often goes hand-in-hand hand with anti-Semitism. Okay? What you believe, sooner or later, impacts what you actually do. We all understand that. Ideas have consequences. We teach this all the time. So these sorts of beliefs, particularly when coupled with this sort of vitriolic language that we find throughout the church, it's no wonder that we've seen such a terrible history of Christian anti-Semitism. And many people, many, many Jewish commentators, Prager and Telushkin, they would say that this legacy of Christian anti-Semitism persisted, and some would say then culminated in the events that we saw in the 20th century. Now, this is serious history. I believe the church needs to confront this rather than clo close her eyes to it. I know there are many organizations that are, but I can tell you when, when you share this sort of stuff with people who have never encountered it, they look at you like you're lying, if you've ever experienced that. They, they can't really believe, they think you're somehow attacking them or the church, and obviously it requires a bit of tact and a bit of you know, going softly, judging your audience in that sort of manner, but this is something we need to confront, expose, deal with, and then we can move, move into sort of the new era that we're confronting now. Now, after World War II, many churches did seek to remove any sort of vestige of replacement theology in their midst. As many people say, it didn't disappear. It just went underground for a small time. Uh, and this, in many parts, this did, though, lead to a, a happy reappraisal of Christian theology. And we saw a, a kind of sort of revival in some of these movements of missions towards the Jews and these sorts of things. Now, if I can just jump forward in history, in recent times, and I'm talking sort of the last 100 years maybe, or 60 years less than that, scholars have noticed a resurgence of a particularly aggressive form of replacement theology, and this is what I want to focus on for the rest of the talk. This has simply been dubbed the new supersessionism. It's not a very good title, this is one of these terms, the new, you have the new supersessionism and they now have the new Christian Zionism, I don't know if you've seen that, and they also have the new anti-Semitism now, so the, we didn't do well with our, with our names, we just added new in front of everything, but all of these different strands are actually extremely important to understanding all of these movements, we'll talk about them a bit. Now, this movement, in sort of theological accounting, it's actually quite a young movement, like I say, only the you know, last 60, 70 maybe years in that sense. What this basically is saying, that this, this sort of classical supersessionism has now been revived under the influence of recent history in the Middle East. So the new supersessionism uses theolog theological arguments and hermeneutical arguments, as does the classical thought. But it also uses political arguments, and it uses them very effectively. 
And it also uses, uh, yeah, so political arguments in its defence. Now, the roots of this new movement come from a number of different sources. So we have to, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of this movement now before we sort of do a bit of critique on it, because I want you to see how replacement theology has developed. And when you meet replacement theology today, it's probably going to be flavoured with this new sort. It's going to have all this modern political baggage and these sorts of things attached to it. So the ideological source of the new supersessionism is a movement that has been termed Christian-Palestinianism. Again, this is just the term that seems to have stuck now in the literature. We can argue whether it's helpful or not. But what that basically is saying, that the movement advocates for the Palestinian narrative of Middle East history. So 1948 was the Nakba rather than an event to be celebrated. You know, colonial Jews from, from Europe then dispossessed indigenous Arabs. This is, you know, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. This is the, the Palestinian narrative. So it uses this, it mixes it with Palestinian nationalism and also a strong dose of liberation theology taken all from the, the Marxists of the 60s, the, the oppressed and the oppressor, that sort of um, narrative. All of these things are melted together into this new supersessionism. Canon Andrew White, Church of England, Middle East representative, he said that Palestinian Christian revisionism has revived replacement theology. And unfortunately, the literature does seem to suggest that that is the case. The political narrative that shapes this theology sees Israel as a racist state, guilty of apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide, and all of the hot-button terms that we see thrown around all too often, usually with no context. Now, the major driving force in defining and solidifying international support for this movement has been what one organisation called the Palestinian Ecumenical Liberation Theology Centre, popularly known as Sabil. If any of you have heard of that. Naeem Atik founded this in 1994. Um, this was one of the original sort of movements that were pushing this viewpoint. Basically, if you've read his book, Justice for All, Justice is Only, I forget the exact title. Obviously, when you try and simplify things, you do maybe do people a disservice. Just excuse me for that right now. But basically, social justice becomes the grid through which this movement interprets the scriptures and the entire Bible. You see, so God is always seen as taking the side of the oppressed, and this is then applied to the modern Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's very easy to see how this plays out in the media. One person will be labelled oppressor, one people will be labelled the oppressed. And through the Palestinian liberation theology, God is always on the side of the oppressed. And obviously, I don't need to explain where I'm going with who, who takes which side. On that, Israel is always seen as the oppressor in this narrative. They are the ones inflicting injustice and suffering upon others. Therefore... It is the oppressed in a social, social justice liberation theology worldview that must be supported, and that's how the Bible is understood. Let me read to you a quote from, from Atik. This is from his uh, 2001 Easter message. He said, Jesus is the powerless Palestinian humiliated at the checkpoint. It seems that Jesus is on the cross again with thousands of crucified Palestinians around him. Palestinian men, women and children being crucified. The Israeli government crucifixion system is operating daily. To give you just an idea of the sort of political nature of the theology that's being pushed here. And again, I'm, ju I'm just giving you a broad overview of the sort of things that this movement does. Another major initiative I'm sure you're all aware of, Christ at the Checkpoint conferences, these have been going on for a number of years now, put out by Bethlehem Bible College. 
Uh, the Cat C conferences is sort of a who's who of scholars from around the globe, very ecumenical, different backgrounds and, and things like that, that support this sort of anti-Israel narrative and theology. And the conference's promotional materials, they also always feature these very ominous sort of Israeli security checkpoints. And the conference website ex itself explains that the checkpoint and the wall become a focal point and symbol of the conflict. Now, this new supersessionism, this narrative offered through the, the ideology of Christian Palestinianism, one of the, the most shocking things about it is it's the way it's gained such popularity in the Western world, in the Western context. Obviously, I, you know, we can understand maybe, you know, being on the ground where this is actually happening, why you get these very polarized theologies. We're not, not blaming anyone for that necessarily. But it's, it's the support given to it from the Western world that is just shocking how popular it's been. And this has really been bolstered by the support of a few very high-profile evangelical scholars. I'm sure you're familiar, again, I keep saying that, with the name Stephen Sizer. He, his, his very famous book, 2004, Christian Zionism, Roadmap to Armageddon, and the popular version of that, 2007, Zion's Christian Soldiers, the Bible, Israel, and the Church. This is the new supersessionism. Super this is a classic example. And if Stephen Zizer has subsequently been through a very rocky patch, and he's been disciplined many times, I think, now by his diocese. Another one, Colin Chapman, again, it's got a sort of staple book in this country. I see it whenever I'm in Christians' houses. I do see a copy of this book on most bookshelves. Colin Chapman, Whose Promised Land, The Continuing Crisis Over Israel and the Church. I, I say it's not as objectionable as Stephen Sizer's writings to me personally, but it, it still has a lot of problems. And in the wider sort of indigenous Palestinian movement, people like Mitri Raheb and there's lots of other scholars that we could name, you'll notice they lean on these people. They quote people like N.T. Wright and the American people like Gary Burge and Donald Wagner, and all these names are the theological undergirding that they support that gives the theological kudos to their movement. So they take that and then they throw in Palestinian nationalism and liberation theology, apply it to their context, and voila, you have the new supersessionism, which is why social commentators, people like Melanie Phillips and Canon Andrew White, why they're saying this is being, you know, this is inflaming anti-Semitism again because one thing that most people don't like to really acknowledge is that the Palestinian context is very much influenced by Islam so the, although this is never a factor that is talked about when I hear these things actually being assessed you know the Cat C conferences quite often open giving praise to the Palestinian leadership these things are an influence now I understand the cultural context means it's very hard for Christians in that environment to speak out. So I'm, again, not in any way judging that particular situation. I'm just saying if we're trying to analyse these things, we need to look at all the streams that are coming into play. And Islamic theology has a very definite theology of replacement in many ways, and these things do tie into that. Now, so that's a very brief sketch of that movement. I'm, I'm sure you've encountered parts of it. It's growing movement doesn't really show any signs of abating right now and that's probably because you know the conflict doesn't really show any signs of going anywhere it's been around for a long time and I think it will be around in the future and the response by the church I believe has not been sufficient there hasn't been enough people talking about it and I believe we are not doing a good job at passing on the knowledge to the next generation who are simply being sort of infused with the whole social justice mindset where of course liberation theology is the the just position to take 
And if we've allowed them to sort of set up the playing field of how this situation is interpreted, of course they're going to side with, the, with that over against the way the other side is set up. So, so really I want to kind of try and break out of even having this, this us versus them mentality. I don't actually think that's helpful. What I like to try and do, particularly when I'm talking to young people, is we just want to come back to the Bible. Because like those little things that we did in the beginning, studying Israel in the Bible is a fascinating subject. And it cannot be separated from the Messiah of Israel. And that's the point. And usually if you start talking about Jesus, people will say, oh, well, they'll, they'll let you talk about Jesus in a Christian setting I'm talking about. And they, they'll be a little more cautious about saying bad things about Jesus as they would about Israel. So you can use that to tie the two together because Israel and the Messiah cannot be separated. And also Israel and the people and Israel and the land cannot be separated. So there's a definite chain of causation from Messiah to nation to people to land. And that is our sort of, you know, Reform scholars speak of the golden chain of redemption, don't they? I, I would say that's the golden chain of redemption in that respect because it was the nation that was chosen to be a light to the nations. The light to the nations was Jesus Christ and the blessing went out to the world. We were grafted into those covenants. It's a wonderful, enriching theology that young people need to understand particularly and we can explain it that way. We don't always need to just jump in and try and address all the political concerns straight away because that's where a lot of the baggage is. So don't get me wrong, we do need to address them but know your audience. Start, start small, get the theology grounding first. Now let's respond. I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, points in response to some of the ideological and political arguments. So the new supersessionism is obviously what we would say anti-Zionist, and I believe it's very anti-Semitic in many ways. Now these are two terms, particularly anti-Zionism. It's another one of these buzzwords today. We saw the whole hoo-ha with, you know, does Labour accept the new definition of anti-Semitism and how is that playing with anti-Zionism? It, it, it's one of these cultural things that people are aware of right now. We find this in the writings of the new supersessionism, like I say, mixed with a strong dose of nationalism and liberation theology. One thing that advocates of the new supersessionism claim is that they are anti-Zionist, but they are not anti-Semitic. You'll find that in the writings of Sizer, you'll find that in pretty much every book. And Whilst I'm willing to grant that there is a difference between the two, that's absolutely fine. Let me just read to you. This is Desmond Tutu. He was a patron of Sabil. He says, The Israeli government is placed on a pedestal, and to criticise it is to be immediately dubbed anti-Semitic. And that is the charge that you always get thrown at you as you start trying to defend and talk about these topics. And so we want to take it seriously. I mean, it's a serious charge. We're not saying that anyone is above criticism. Let me read to you, this is what I always read, this is Thomas Friedman writing for the New York Times. He said, criticising Israel is not anti-Semitic and saying so is vile. But singling out Israel for opprobrium and international sanction out of all proportion to any other party in the Middle East is anti-Semitic and saying so is dishonest. And I think that's a very, very straightforward quote to understand this. Now, when I've, my reading in this, Yes, you can always find maybe a, church, a few churches in America that are offering a very simplistic narrative, and they're always the ones that seem to get the quotes and the platforms about these issues. But no one is calling anyone anti-Semitic for criticising Israel. 
Israeli government policy, okay? It's a secular government. You go inside the Knesset, you've got left and right. You, nowhere will you find fiercer debate about Israeli policy than within the Knesset itself, okay? And, and democracies encourage criticism. It's, it's useful for positive change. That's how it works. As a democracy and a secular democracy, it's dealing with issues of minorities and all these things that most nations deal with. No one is saying that, that having views on that is anti-Semitic. And I, I don't really find that happening in Christian Zionist literature either. I think it's a bit of a caricature that's being set up as a straw man to stop all criticism. But what we are questioning is that when condemnations of Israel cross a line from valid criticism into denigration that can then be classed as anti-Semitic. And that is what we're taking issue with. Of course you can criticise a nation's policies without being anti-Semitic. But it's, that's, to be honest, that's not generally what I see happening. When I see and read anti-Zionist literature, for me, it always falls into the line of anti-Semitism. Now you can use, some people use Natan Sharansky's 3Ds test, you've ever heard of that? This is, he calls it the 3D test to find out whether anti-Zionism has slipped into anti-Semitism. He, he says the 3Ds are demonization, if you find Israeli people being demonized, so often this is done with cartoons, you've seen those sorts of things. Double standards, so this is talking about holding Israel to a higher moral standard than you do the people you're criticizing it against. And you know, if you look at the nations in the Middle East, you see this happening all the time. And then if you delegitimize Israel's right to exist. All of those things take you from being anti-Zionist to also being anti-Semitic if you cross the line into those areas. And Unfortunately, I see all those things within the writings of the new supersessionism frequently. They just, they just are. So I think the charge is valid that, that anti-Semitism is being revived under this new movement. And it's interesting to just know a little bit about the term anti-Zionism. A little bit of history here. If you've ever read uh, historian Paul Johnson's History of the Jews, he, go, he has some great chapters where he goes into the, the way this term started to appear in our common language. And it was during the Soviet, the Cold War era, after the, the war. Now, if you're familiar, the Soviet machine kicked out more anti-Semitic literature than maybe even the Third Reich did. I mean, they were just masters at anti-Semitic literature. And he says this, this is Paul Johnson, he says, the campaign against the Jews by the Soviets was conducted under the code name of anti-Zionism, which became a cover for every variety of anti-Semitism. Johnson comments that the fact that Zionism in practice stood for the Jews became quickly apparent. And I don't see any difference. I'd say in many cases that is still how the word anti-Zionism is being used. Historically, it was put out as a way to cover anti-Semitism. And I, I, fortunately, that still seems to be the case. Now, the accusations of racism and apartheid that we see all throughout the world today, along with comparisons to the Nazis, you've seen these sorts of things, all of those things serve to both demonize and delegitimize the state of Israel. And therefore, for me, they are anti-Semitic, as a lot of the definitions now are beginning to state and, and come up with. However, you will find people in the new supersessionism still strenuously denying these sorts of things. Now, we know, obviously, that there's a lot of half-truths in these, these things, too. You know, Israel is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. It's a liberal democracy. It has a legal system that upholds rights for citizens. Israel's 25% non-Jewish minority have equal voting rights. They can hold seats in parliament. And Arab citizens have absolute freedom of movement in Israel. 
both Jews and Arabs can study in universities together. That is the complete opposite of apartheid. Now, what they're really getting at is that the Palestinians who are not citizens can't do those things. But, of course, that's, again, you're getting into a double standard that you wouldn't apply to any other nation when you start expecting those sorts of things to be the norm. So you, you, it, it's a very complex, muddied, messy way to analyse the situation. We need people doing it. But, again, my advice is when we're starting with people who are new to these issues, start with the theology. Start with helping them to grasp the amazing story that God has crafted through the Bible. And this starts, see, the story that most people are told, if you've ever watched, you know, famous evangelists or evangelism training courses, they'll always have this sort of narrative, creation, full redemption, creation, full redemption. A lot of systematic theology textbooks are still written like this. And it's a good way to understand the Bible in one sense. Creation, obviously. God created everything good. The fall is how everything got bad, and redemption is how that is fixed. And that is, they call it economic or structural supersessionism. What that basically does, if you notice, if that's the narrative that people have, where's the whole story of Israel needed in that? Okay, you can start in Genesis, you can go to Genesis 3, and then you can just jump straight over to the book of Matthew. The whole history of Israel is completely redundant in that narrative. So the way I like to phrase it is when I hear people using that or see them using it, we need to just put one more in there. Creation, full, covenant, redemption. And when you put the word covenant in there, you have to go through the entire history of Israel. And it leads to the redemption. Okay, and that, that is that we need to be offering a theology that offers that to people in, in a corrective measure to help them understand these things. So that's brief introduction to some of those ideological issues. I'm sure you can see they do get very complex. Things get very heated when you're discussing these things. I, I don't generally like to, to discuss them because it's such a minefield. I'll judge my audience. I'll know who I'm speaking to. Sometimes you'll have to spend hours qualifying your statements. It, it's difficult work, but we do need to do it. So let me give you just one example, and then we'll maybe open it up for Q&A. Looking at the theological arguments. So you know that replacement theology does, in my view, create a radical distinction between Old and New Covenant. It just does that. In our Western mindsets, we say Old and New Covenant, and we translate that to Old and New Testament, and we translate that Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to Revelation. That's just how we think in a, in a Christian setting. Naim Atik, he said that the belief that he, he has a belief that the New Testament, he says, quote, desionizes the Old Testament, which is a potentially dangerous document. Now, this is why, you see, for most people in this view, the New Testament takes priority in the sense that it, it has an overruling authority on the Old Testament, and therefore it can reinterpret and re-expand the promises and make them mean things that they didn't mean to the Old Testament audience. Ultimately, this whole fulfillment thing, they're all fulfilled in Christ. I believe it's an overly simplistic reduction of the Bible into old and new covenants. I don't like those terms. I think we, we need to, we should get away from those terms really, but they're so ingrained we're not going to, so we have to figure out a way to, to make it clear. One of the things you'll notice in the new supersessionist literature is they use these terms to great effect, almost playing on people's preconceived understanding of it. Uh, they're never specific about what they mean. You see, what they will argue is they will argue for the annulling of the old covenant, they'll use that broad term, old covenant, and in that, they'll include all the national promises to Israel that go with it. You see, but they will never define what they actually mean by old covenant. You see, that's a very broad 
categorization. You see, we know from the Bible there are many covenants in the Bible. We have the Abrahamic covenant, we have the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then the new or the Messianic covenant. And all of these are different, they have different stipulations and different things attached to them. And yes, they expand and build on one another in one sense, but to simply lump them all under this one name, Old Covenant, is a problem. Because they're all found in the Old Testament. They're all made with the house of Israel, but they're also all found in the New Testament too. So, so what do we do? What do we do with that? So such a simple sort of arbitrary twofold distinction, I believe, is insufficient to capture the depth of the covenantal promises that we find. And how this plays out in their literature is what they will then do is the new supersessionism will ultimately they'll look to conflate the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant into one homogenous grouping that they simply label Old Covenant. Now, stay with me here. This is really important because once you understand this, you'll be able to sort of read, sort of see behind the, the words in a lot of these books that you might encounter. So that's what they do. So this leads to the sort of vague but constant refrain that many Christians will just agree with generally that the new has replaced the old. Okay? Now, to a point, we agree, you know, many Christians would agree with them if they think they're talking about maybe just the Mosaic Constitution legislation. But that's not what they're meaning. They're, they Remember, they've lumped all the covenants under this sort of one banner. But then they'll use, like, the language in the book of Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 8.13. I'll read it for you just for context. Uh, when he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Stephen Sizer, for example, he comments that the writer goes on to explain that the old covenant with Israel is now obsolete because it has been superseded. So he uses this Hebrews language that he knows many Christians are familiar with to argue for an annulling of, of the future of Israel. Now, the problem is, in Hebrews, the argument is concerning the Mosaic covenant. That, that's really what the book of Hebrews is dealing with. So why on earth are you actually lumping in the land promises, for example, from the Abrahamic covenant into that argument? For the, you know, that, this is the issue we need to be more specific about, but they never go into it in that detail. He just, like Sizer simply says there, lumped it all under this term old. Hebrews clearly says old is gone, new is in, old is out, everything with the old, the land, the promises, the people, the uniqueness, all that sort of stuff, that's gone. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And to a first-time person hearing that, you can see that actually sounds like a very logical theological argument that Hebrews does seem to be making. But this is what I'm saying. We need to have a better explanation of covenant. That's why creation, full covenant redemption, and express all of these different elements of the covenant to show that that is a problem. For me, that's one of the major... If you can just understand that concept, you'll be well-equipped to battle some of the, the new supersessionism on theological grounds. Now, because of this... It shows up in a very funny way in the new supersessionist movement. You see, and this is the way they, they interpret the Bible, they spend so much time arguing as the above, as we've just looked at, that this Old Testament has passed away and it's obsolete now. However, when they're arguing for the Palestinian cause over against Israelis, they always use justice arguments. It's back to the social justice arguments and liberation theology. And they argue against Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And the way they do that is they go to the Old Testament and they look at these texts that talk about Israel treating the stranger in the land, like Deuteronomy 16 and 10 and 20. So there's loads of them about how you treat the, the, the stranger and the foreign, foreigner. And then they will then argue that Israel is not treating 
Palestinians in accordance with this, and thus we can have these polemics against Israel. Now, the problem is it's rather disingenuous to build a theological anti-Israel polemic by utilising texts from the Old Testament which, as demonstrated, your entire framework relies upon the fact that you've already argued that they don't have any weight anymore. You see what they've done there? So it's just when it suits their purpose, they can argue with them. When it doesn't, they'll argue that they've been revoked. Why try and invoke these stipulations? Are they done or are they not done? This is one of the issues, and it's, it's a real... You see this all the time in the literature, too. It's just one of, one of the other issues. Now, they're, I know they're quite big theological issues, and they, we could spend sessions on them alone. So what I've tried to do is give you an overview of where this movement came from, why it's happening, and I believe it's going to continue to grow, to be frank. And we need to be responding to it, and we need to be having good, deep, theological, robust responses. But I would also, again, just push that these responses cannot merely be combating political issues. Um, I'm sure with an organisation like this, you, you often get the question, are you Zionist? I'm sure you've got a leaflet about it over there. And sometimes your answer to that can mean whether you're going to get a closed ear or an open ear for anything else you say from that. So we have to navigate this with real wisdom. And the way I like to do that is just go back to the covenants. Just take it back to theology. Tell the grand story that gets people excited about theology. And then you have a better chance for a hearing. And it's, it's not quick work, but it's work that we need to be involved in. So in many ways, it resembles the classical replacement theology of the past, but I believe it has this novel element which warrants the term new, which is the revitalizing through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and liberation theology. As Christians, we need to continue to oppose any theology that has any hint of anti-Semitism in it. And I believe we mustn't be known just as a church that stands against anti-Semitism. That's not enough, actually, in my view. We need to be known for positive philo-Semitism. Okay, and, and only the, you know, it's no good just being known for what we're against in that sense. We need to have both in that area. Ultimately, we seek to do this by upholding the gospel as the ultimate answer to both Jews and Palestinians, as the ultimate solution within the land and without across the globe. Uh, so let's let's finish there. I know there's some big issues. I'm sure people have got some some questions on that. Okay, thank you so much, Tommy. That's, that's been a great overview and there's lots of stuff reverberating in my mind. I'm sure some of that is in your mind as well and you want to come back now with some questions. So for the, for the sake of the recording, I'll repeat the question. If you can keep it fairly brief, a question is different to a statement. So can we have some questions? That would be really helpful. For, thank you. John. Tommy, how did they address the issue that we were perhaps on to? So the question is, is about how do people hold a replacement view engage with the clear teaching in scripture about that we are grafted in what, what are we grafted into if it's not the faithfulness of God's covenant promises so a number of ways the, the most common way is they universalize everything so they say that it was what we see in the old testament was anticipatory of what was going to be the greater fulfillment so particularly with the area of the land it started off as a unique geographical territory, but under the fulfillment of the new covenant, they would say, it is now in universalized to mean the globe, the whole entire world. And then they'll quote phrases like, you know, we're commanded to take the gospel into the, into the whole world. And that's pretty much at the same, that's how they do that. We, the church now, it started off with a nation that then led to the universalized 
global corporate body known as the church in that sense. So, and quite often there's some half-truths in the way they explain it, or some truth, to be honest, but I don't believe the, the actual application is correct because they, they do away with the original promises in that sense. But it's, it comes back to that point about the very nice language of fulfilment. But they, uni- they universalise the promises, basically. The land becomes the globe, the people becomes every tribe, tongue and nation, the church, and that sort of thing. That, that's generally how I've seen it done. Thank you. Do we have a, a follow-up question, or a question taking us in a different direction to that? Okay, got a question from Paul. It's quite a specific question. Um, somebody that I know that I've had a bit of an ongoing dialogue with, the 99% of the time response is, it doesn't mention the land in the New Testament. So a quick response to that that, okay. that will kill the argument. I mean, you can have all kinds of discussions on it, but have you got anything specific? So the, is the... Uh, Appearance of the absence of land in New Testament texts. How, how do we respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways. I mean, it does come up, and of course, we acknowledge that the land is not the primary feature in the same sense that you see it being emphasised in the Old Testament. But that's a long way from saying that it's not important anymore. See, the problem is part of their hermeneutic gives the New Testament hermeneutical priority. They call it over the old. So, so there, therefore, even if you find it in the old, it's not important in the new. Whereas that's just, a, again, it's that dichotomy between the two. Whereas I would say, you know, the Old Testament is its own reference point. It's an inspired word of God. And yes, there's progressive revelation into the New Testament, but it doesn't reinterpret the promises. And a lot of these promises are attached to specific covenants. This is my, this is my argument, like we see it in Romans. When, when they're talking about the new covenant, say everyone, you know, we all have that, we were grafted in and we share those spiritual blessings but the new covenant also um, is an expansion in many ways in the texts that talk about it of the land covenants which is the part they're always trying to do away with but you find the new covenant confirmed in the new testament very clearly now just because it doesn't specifically outline the borders and the land the covenant is where the promises come from and these are still continued throughout into the new testament and even so there are some some texts that do hint or do you know, I always ask, well, where does it say Jesus is going to return to? And the question is very clear. You're even given the, the name of the city within the land that it's going to return to, and then ask them why. If it's not significant anymore, why choose that place again? And that just opens up the discussion, and that's, that's usually where I go with that one. Thank you. Okay, anybody else? <laughs> You've got two for the price of one, John. So really, Tommy was talking about the Hebrews text as being one of the sources or apparent sources to give some credence to supersessionist thinking. Are there other texts people might go to? And those are the kind of texts we, we, we have to contend with and not, not avoid. Yeah, there are lots of texts, and and if it's purely theological argument, they're very much the same texts that you'll be familiar with from classical supersessionism. People love Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. People love to point out that in Joshua it says all these promises have been fulfilled. Hebrews is a massive, massive book for supersessionism because it has this obsolete language you know, talking about the Mosaic Covenant. So I would say they, they are the main ones, but I'll be honest with you that they have been responded to you know, voluminously in the, in the academic literature. There are many good responses to them. 
And that's why I believe this movement seems to focus more primarily on the justice arguments, because they're the ones that, you know, of course people want justice. We're Christians. We should be justice sensitive in that respect, and they play on that. And that's why they quote a lot of these Old Testament verses that speak about the treatment of the, uh, the foreigner in the land, because it's a very easy, it says this, that's not what we see, therefore the two are not the same, that sort of thing. And they're, they're the way, so it's, it's not so much which verses, because every theological system has its own kind of interpretation of the verses. It's a matter of being slightly more sophisticated in, in your understanding of the big picture and seeing behind how they're using them and trying to fill in a, a broader narrative. And that, that's the hard part, actually, I, I find, of engaging in these issues, because we can all proof text a belief to actually go behind the scenes with a proof text takes a little bit more time, and it's often time we're not given, I'll be frank. <laughs> okay, there are going to be opportunities to talk to Tommy afterwards on coffee and cake and stuff, so don't, if you want to talk to him on a one-to-one, I'm sure Tommy will be around for a little bit. So I just want to finish by, if John's had two questions, can I just have two questions to finish, <laughs> just to keep it nice and even? I thought it was really helpful, Tommy, when you talked about that often in gospel preaching there's a kind of uh, motif from Genesis for redemption, and I think you very helpfully said, okay, there's, there's a missing part there which we need to get the big picture, which is covenant. I wonder if you could also perhaps add a fifth part to that in terms of return of Christ mm. post-redemption, because I think it's the lack of eschatology in church preaching and teaching, which often creates a distortion in our understanding of Israel. How, how do you feel about the importance of eschatology in, in, in your advocacy? Yeah, that great, great question. I think it is a much neglected area. And I would say, actually, a good one, people sometimes do add on consummation okay. onto the end of that. Okay. that so that, then that would actually, yeah, that would be a more... So, you, you know, we definitely don't want to ignore the end times just over 31,000 verses in the Bible, about 8,500 are prophetic in nature. The book of Revelation says that testimony, the spirit of Jesus is the testimony of prophecy. Therefore, everything that speaks prophetically, either fulfilled or unfulfilled, gives us more information about our Lord and Savior. Therefore, it is something the church cannot afford to dismiss. It would be stupid of us to do that, really. And Now, we know why people avoid these issues, because they're sensational in some elements and people do it a disservice but that doesn't mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. we need good biblical exegetes who are able to attach it to the culture what's what people want to see often in churches and i see this with other areas too we don't connect the bible to the real world particularly for young people so therefore it just stays as a sort of story that we do behind the closed walls of the church and it doesn't go out into the real world with them and then they're in the real world and they're watching the news and they're getting all the different Perspectives. People want to fill their head with something. But this is why. So we need to teach eschatology. We need to teach it grounded in theology. We need to stay away from sensationalism. But we do need to, like, like we were saying, it is the consummation of our story. Quite often when you're reading a book, the end is the best part. So we don't want to miss the end. And finally, talking about the end, a couple of young people, not mentioning any names um, or my children, would say, Dad, I would have been a Christian Zionist in the 1930s, but not in the 1990s. And I just wonder if being an advocate, I mean, this is the justice issue, isn't it? Do you think it's more difficult, the work you're doing, the work we're doing now, than it would have been for our predecessors? I think in one sense I'm going to say yes to that. 
because there has been such a bombardment and growth of anti-Israel narratives within the media. And we are very much a media culture now. The media, I know young people spend up to six to eight hours a day on screens. So you are constantly up against the fight. Of, and the narratives that are coming through these screens, I would say, are quite antithetical to the biblical worldview in that respect. However, having said that, in some respects, they're even more of a blank slate. A lot of people I know, you know, media has an effect, but the influence of the church is still large, but we just have to invest in the young people. Now, when, I, when I've had young people and I've opened up discussions about this, yes, they kind of parrot the typical things, but that's only the first conversation. All you have to do is show the fallacies in that without being confrontational, and then you get an opportunity to speak the other side and they do listen now Christian Zionism is a term unfortunately that you have to in my experience anyway you have to almost spend a whole lecture clarifying what you do and do not mean with that and, and that unfortunately is a problem I know some Christian Zionists are, are sort of moving back to the term restorationist that you found sort of pre the pre-Zionist era so we do have challenges, like I know the Lifeway survey of evangelical attitudes towards Israel does show a falling away of support for Israel. But on the other hand, I believe if we are preaching that full biblical gospel, basically, that has to include the narrative of Israel, then that's no reason why that should continue. And if we, we're praying for revival, we're praying for the gospel to go forth, this quite often brings a movement back to a more serious understanding of scripture, unclouded by the modern politics that we've seen over the years. And that's really my heart, is, is to get people back into that. And that will give them the understanding to interpret what they're seeing in the world. And, and that's, that's the thing I think the church needs to be focusing on primarily. Because there's always going to be defenders for Zionism or anti-Zionism battling it out in the public sphere. And there's a place for all of that. However, the people that we're interacting with in our church context on a day-to-day -day basis don't necessarily have the tools to interpret that. And it's our job to give them those tools. And that, I believe, will have much more effect when we raise up that generation who already have the tools when they step out into the public sphere than rather than trying to actually kind of backtrack to people who are already in the public sphere. And that's, that's kind of the attitude. Well, I think that's been an excellent lecture and thank you for engaging with that and Tommy for coming all this way to speak to us. We've been very indebted to you. I think you've spoken with a wisdom and an overview and a pastoral heart, which we really appreciate. So thank you so much, Tommy, and God bless you in what you're doing. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.